Gather round, one and all, and listen to tales of excitement and adventure. Tales of daring heroes, savage monsters, and bards who just couldn't keep it in their pants. Tales of friendship, nobility, drunken foolishness, and unforgettable fun. These are tales of role-playing games, fair listeners, and this is Rollin' Bones. My name is Ryan Howard, and I shall be your guide. Good evening, Boneheads, and welcome to Rollin' Bones with Ryan Howard, your source for the best in RPG interviews. I am your host and king of the Boneheads, Ryan Howard, and joining us this evening, we have uh, one of the... uh, one of the founders of the Academy of Games. Uh, you recently heard him on the Vintage RPG podcast, where I have shamelessly stolen many a guest. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, please welcome Joe DeSimone. Joe, welcome. What's up? Thanks. Awesome. Thank you for uh, for coming on, and of course, thank you uh, to John Hambone McGuire for uh, connecting us. Hambone's good people is a, a good person to find guests to steal from. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Joe, we are going to kick this off the same way we kick off all these first-time interviews on Rolling Bones. I've got these questions that everyone gets asked when they come on, so let's begin at the beginning. How did you get into RPGs? Uh, sure. Um, <clears throat> so I grew up in New York City, and... When I was a kid, I'm 31 now, so this is the early 90s, there were uh, hobby stores all over the city. This is before it got too expensive for them to exist. And there was one on 26th Street between 6th and 7th Avenue called Neutral Grounds, which took up the entire fourth floor of a building. And I was a nerdy kid. My parents had no idea what to do with me. They were not nerdy people. Um, And they found this place and basically just started taking me there because I I would just stop bothering them if they did. And so I start going there, I, I'm like four or five, like really young. Um, I'm playing magic, like first couple sets of magic I got introduced to. And I basically get adopted by a bunch of like mid 40s metalheads who are there playing you know, AD&D and other games and magic and mm-hmm. things like that. And I'd say five or six, I got introduced to a game called Delta Green, which was originally a fifth edition called Cthulhu Hack that got published as its own game uh, by uh, Pagan, Pagan Publishing was the name of the company. Um, and that was my very first RPG. And I was like five years old playing this uh incredibly violent dark uh cthulhu game um and i didn't i didn't get introduced to D until actually a bunch of years after that uh but yeah that's that was my entree into role-playing games gotcha sounds like we had very similar uh entrances into the hobby only uh 
yours was through magic and and mine was through warhammer 40k oh yeah i mean i i did get into 40k eventually but no minis minis were a later passion for me Mm -hmm. yeah minis at the time i was not uh real real good at the the painting side of things (laughs) but as the uh, the space next to me will attest uh, I am obsessed with miniature painting now. <laughs> um, it's, uh, it's funny when when I finally got into minis. My my mom's an artist, and so somehow minis were like an actually acceptable pursuit. Mm-hmm. She didn't really understand any of the other things, but like painting a two thousand point knit army was totally <laughs> fine because I was there painting, and she was in her room painting. Mm-hmm. Um, so. That was the first nerdy thing I did that I think my parents ever like had some understanding of. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's it's one of those things that even though it is kind of like the height of nerdiness, you can always show someone what you've done, and they're usually going to be super impressed. Even yeah, if no. you're just like an okay painter, you can show it to someone and be like, how do you paint something that tiny? I, I had a bunch of uh, hormigons that I just spray-painted in the stairwell of my apartment building, there are still like black and white spray paint marks on the floors there to this day. Um, <laughs> and then just dry brush them. I think it was the high fleet Leviathan color scheme. Um, and they weren't good. They, they, you know, as a kid, they I was not an adept painting, but I still remember like having this table full of hormigons and my mom just being like, those are actually really nice. And I was like, yes, this feels good. <laughs> Someone, finally, a nerdy thing I've done, gets some approval. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Now, this next question can be very difficult for people, uh, but of all the games, all the RPGs you've played over the years, what would you say is your favorite game or favorite system? Uh, do... Do you want to refine that at all? Is it like broad top level favorite, the one that I've had the most fun with personally? Yeah. Or yeah, okay. let's or here, let's let's break it down. One you've had the most fun with personally, and then one that uh, you really enjoyed the like rules aspect and kind of the not necessarily the crunch if it's not a crunchy game, but the just sure. kind of the the bones of the game sure that's something that's uh, struck me as innovative or spark something in me um mm-hmm. most fun it's the first game um i've fun with delta green than i think any role-playing game i've played um despite actually liking this uh, not uh, the big fan of fifth edition COC, and however much I love the Arc Dream guys, that's the company that now puts it out. Um, I don't know. It's just it's not my type of system in a lot of ways. Uh, but from a narrative standpoint, it tells exactly the kind of stories that I I enjoy um, playing through, which is the X Vials. But what if Mulder and Scully didn't have plot armor? Um, like it, it gets very dark and very gritty without going into like modern day grim dark. Um, so that's most fun. <sighs> the other half of that is a much more difficult question. Um, wow. Um, okay, uh, let's let's walk through 
my my like design education arc um i don't know probably the first game i got exposed to where i realized that i was completely off base about what games were inherently like role-playing games because i i started out in a pretty trad background um it was a long time before i got exposed to anything outside of that side of the hobby and i think the first game that really like shocked me out of um thinking i knew what games were about was vincent baker's game before apocalypse world kill puppies for satan um yeah, I think Kill Puppies for Satan was the first game where I was like, this conforms to none of my ideas of what a role-playing game is, but is still undeniably an RPG. Um, what else might be out there? Yes. Yeah, that really that kicked it off for me, I think, in a big way. Gotcha. I am not at all familiar with that game, so I, I should check that out. And uh it's um a, a little background it's kind of an experimental game that vince baker who would then later become much more famous for apocalypse world and started you know kicking off the whole power by the apocalypse movement of the past two decades back in the late 90s and early aughts there was a community called the forge online which anyone who's been around the block has seen at least one fight about um Vince Baker basically on a dare, on like a design challenge dare sort of in that community, um, put together a game that was just ultra simplistic, um, really dark, but also comical. Just, it, it's almost like a, an early shit post uh, as a game. Um, and it's, it's not something that I think is terribly fun at the table. Mm -hmm. Um, it's not refined enough for a lot of types of play experiences. Like I think with the right players, you might have a good one session out of it. But beyond that, I don't know that it has legs, but it it's just distinct enough from, I think what everyone was putting out, you know, in the late nineties, which I think in a big way is a lot of what we're still seeing in the mass market. Um, it, it shows the beginnings of somebody thinking truly outside of the box um and then that's the kind of work that in my life today gets me the most excited gotcha gotcha so it's kind of like a it's like a game for people who are really obsessed and and know a lot about games enough to know just how different and weird this really feels yeah gotcha so it's it's kind of it's the game equivalent of Andrew Dice Clay's uh, "The Night the Laughter Died." I gotcha. Yeah. All right. So going back to those early days, uh, you know that that first investigator you you made. Who who mm -hmm. were you? Who who was that character? Oh wow! I don't. Uh... Or your first memorable character, if you don't remember. There that you one go. That I can answer. Um. This actually is a bunch of years later. I mean, this is maybe a full decade later. But the first character I can remember uh, in high school, I got really addicted to the uh, unofficial World of Darkness live chat, mm -hmm. which was a game that ran around the clock. 
um, it was a live chat game, so like a chat room, and you you played in character the entire time, and there were uh, different rooms for the different games, but by and large it was Vampire that dominated, um, and sometimes people would play mortal characters. And I made a character named Ben Johnson, who was a New Orleans detective, um, who was a pretty unremarkable character. It was the kind of thing that a 15, 16-year-old kid writes up. But um, there was a, a big scene a couple months into me playing. That was a meeting of the Camarilla, which, if you don't know Vampire, is the governing body of vampires in that game, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and so all these super important characters were there, these players who had invested, you know, time and really like years of their lives into building importance in this fictional world. And I get invited by someone who is considering turning me into a vampire. Um, and I proceed to have a side scene where while there is a meeting of the Camarilla going on, I ask a moderator, hey, if I went to the bathroom, would vampires still be able to hear like is there enough distance and they're like yeah no totally their senses are good enough so i go and uh have an entire scene where i am just in a toilet stall uh having a really negative reaction to bad shellfish in the (laughs) middle of this massive important scene like the most important meeting of the year for all these players and just every few lines is me just being like ben johnson like wretches into the toilet um and just disrupting the whole thing and uh and in the whole community i became known as oyster man um that was that was the legacy of ben johnson was dozens hundreds of people around the world knew me as oyster man oh that's Uh, fantastic (laughs) that is truly beautiful (laughs) so yeah that's that's my first memorable character gotcha now do you often find yourself in the player seat or uh are you like a lot of people who who come through here and you end up kind of being the forever gm How, how does that work out for you typically it depends on the set of individuals that i'm playing with um I have the benefit of a very good number of my friends being designers at this point. Uh, So it's a group of people who all have that problem, which means that when we play with each other, only one of us has that problem. And so we can rotate through and it lets us be players. Um, With my like normie everyday friends, I'm definitely the GM. Um, And for work, I am the GM. That's my job. But, uh, with my designer friends, yeah, I'd say I'm far more often a player. Gotcha. Now, when it comes to those times where you're uh, behind the screen, as it were, a lot of us, you know, have our favorite NPCs that uh, tend to travel game to game, setting to setting, always seem to find their way in there. Do, do you have a forever NPC like that? I don't. Oh. That's really interesting. I didn't even know that was a thing. Yeah, I've, I mean, I definitely have one. I I actually have two, and there's one who, like, two versions of him are always running around, because I basically had my first character that I ever played uh, basically become a plane hopper. <laughs> okay. But 
every time I ask that, or most of the time when I ask that question, because not everyone has one, but there usually, you know, there's, it's never like an important NPC, but there's like a shopkeeper who always shows up or my, my most memorable one, uh, someone had this character named Dingy Pete who okay. like anytime they had to go down to the docks, he was just this old, like retired pirate captain. The players would always run into. Okay. Um, yeah. I, I wonder why I don't, I feel like I'm just a pretty reactionary GM. Gotcha. Um, and so I, I have very little going in, to any particular session mm-hmm. um i just i fill it in in the moment with whatever the player seemed to need gotcha yeah i mean that that makes sense too uh i i only have one now because i have committed myself to having one i do uh, i do a lot of on the fly stuff myself uh but yeah i mean when you are coming up with stuff pretty much like on, on the fly like that or you know reacting to what the players are doing that definitely makes sense that one doesn't kind of naturally materialize i also play with a lot of people who don't really have any idea of um tropes or what fits into a a quote-unquote standard session of a game Mm -hmm. and so a lot of characters that i feel like i could come up with right that that would just be pulled from any number of uh fantasy books or science fiction books or whatever um would would land completely wrong with a lot of my audience just because i'm not i'm so rarely running games for gamers gotcha gotcha and uh real quick here prax from uh, gamertarians welcome thanks for dropping in i'm glad that you could make it tonight uh although i do think Cobra Kai was the better choice, but still, it's good to have you nonetheless. Gotcha. So, uh, you've alluded to your your DM style here. You're very reactionary. You like to, you know, see what the players throw at you here, but how would you describe your play style as a player? Uh, Shitpost. I just, (laughs) I joke constantly. Um, I've never been able to take any role seriously as a player. Uh, I am, I am the death of a, of a serious game. Gotcha. (laughs) I just, I can't do it. I I see any opportunity for chaos or humor and I have to take it. (laughs) Gotcha. Now, um, this is another difficult question because, again, people who dedicate a lot of time, a lot of effort into this particular hobby, we have a lot of fond memories tied up with RPGs and with gaming with our friends. If you had to pick a fondest RPG memory, what would that be? Uh, paying to play a convention game with Dennis Detwiller, who is now a friend, but at the time was kind of like my hero, uh, and having him pause mid-game and tell me that I was actually really good at role-playing. Awesome. Nice. That's always good to hear. Yeah. 
No, that was nice. It was like being starstruck this whole time. I'm like this guy whose name has been on some of the most important books of my life. Uh, the books that got me into the hobby books I've had on my shelf for years. I'm just sitting there like trying not to crap my pants and mid game. He pauses and is just like, you're a really good role player. Like you really get into the characters. And I was like, wow, one, never heard that before <laughs> Two, I can't believe you're the one saying that. Um, so yeah, that's a, that's a standout. That was Gen Con 2015. I want to say, Gotcha. Gotcha. Cool. Now, unfortunately, we got to go from the very, very high to the very, very low because, you know, in this hobby, we play with all kinds of different types of people. Uh, you you have probably encountered the broadest variety, uh, having kind of the, the business that you have, uh, running games for non-gamers, like you said. Uh, some people we really hit it off with, and some people just don't seem to click with us. And then there are the worst of the worst, who we have this term of that guy for. So if you have a that guy story that you are comfortable sharing on the show, uh, please feel free to tell us your that guy story. Um, okay, so one of the first games I ever ran, this was back when Neutral Grounds was still open. I was still a kid. I was oh, 12, maybe. And I was running... I'm going to say AD&D. I don't even remember what game I was running at the time. Um, but I'm, I'm not a good GM at this point. Um, like, very clearly not good. Like, deeply inexperienced. So I'm playing with a bunch of 40-year-olds who, um, I guess at this point, they're probably even older than that. And they've been in the hobby for ages, right? Mm -hmm. um, these are people who would have already been in their teens when the hobby began existing gotcha um and this one dude just gets uh i don't know if he's just angry at my gm style or if he's just not having a good time a day or good time or whatever but he starts yelling at me and and he just loses himself to it and <laughs> gets up and walks around the table to stand next to me and yell at me um it's just in a hobby shop like a 55 year old man yelling at a 12 year old like <laughs> why are you such a bad gm um the other guys like pulled him off calmed him down mm -hmm. um but i'm still kind of shocked that i didn't just immediately quit the hobby after that happened i feel like if any if any other walk of my life some dude four times my age walked around a table to yell directly at me the first time I did something, I would just give it up. Um, and yet I, I didn't with role-playing games, so. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's... that. I mean, I, I remember being in a similar situation. I was, you know, 12, 13 when I got into gaming and just... It never happened, fortunately, but, you know, thinking, if one of these dudes just starts screaming at me, I, I don't know what I'm going to do. Just, I'm out. Um, and to be fair, it took a long time for me to bounce back. That was like the beginning of me being much more of a video gamer than uh, analog gamer. It was only later that I got back into analog. So maybe it did. Maybe it scarred me a little bit. Gotcha. 
Well, for the last of these introductory questions here, uh, this may be the hardest question of them all, and I'll tell you, the answer can be as philosophical or as sophomoric as you want it to be. Um, but if you could put anything on a t-shirt, what would it be? Um, I mean, it's, it's, it's a t-shirt that a friend of mine already made and that I own a copy of. Um, uh, my buddy Jordan, who runs the Dread Singles Twitter account, um, makes like graphic tees just as a side business and a few years ago he put out one that says uh tabletop games will break your heart <laughs> and that's i i wear it all the time um i've worn it to events like with clients mm -hmm. um i don't know it's it is as <laughs> a sentiment about the hobby as any i can think of they're just they're gonna break your heart mm-hmm Absolutely. You're going to love them. You're going to engage with them all the same. You know it's coming. You know it's going to break up with you. But at the same time, what are you going to do until then? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Ooh, that is haunting. It's a nice little reminder when I open my drawer and I see it and I'm like, yep. <laughs> Sobering moment. That's gotcha. weak. Gotcha. So... Now that we have the introductions out of the way, um, you run a very interesting uh, business and one that I have had uh, kind of a, a passing familiarity with because here in Nashville, where I am, I've got two very good friends, uh, Josh Unruh and Keith Potempa, who run uh, what they call the Heroes Guild, hmm. where... Okay. Basically, they've got a uh, an after-school program uh, that they do at a couple different schools with a couple friends of theirs, and they run a uh, like a kids RPG that they created, uh, kind of to you know like teach kids morality lessons and stuff like that, and uh, just give them something to do after school that's fun, get them into the hobby, that kind of stuff. Um, so I say that because I've heard their stories about what it's like running games for kids. And I just got to know, in general, what is the experience of running tabletop games for kids uh, just from your point of view? Oh, wow. Um, God, uh, I feel like I would split that into like a dozen different examples of like the, the vertical slices I've seen. Mm -hmm. But broadly, I don't know. Kids like playing games. Um, they only don't when you try to stop them engaging with the games they want in the ways they want. Mm -hmm. um, like, if you try to make a child, an 8-year-old, engage with a game in the same way that, like, a 30-year-old would, that kid's going to fight you tooth and nail. Mm -hmm. But if you just let that kid engage with the game in the way they want to engage with that game, I don't know. They're, it's easy as can be. Gotcha. One thing that they've kind of told me is it's, you know, as a kid, and I definitely had this as a kid, I'm sure you, you probably did as well since we both ended up here, uh, I had kind of an anarchic imagination, and I feel like that's that's standard for a lot of kids. Uh, do you do you see that manifest itself in some some fun but also weird ways with the kids that you run games for? Absolutely. So 
I still mentally use a typology that came out of a place where I really first started thinking about the interactions of kids and games in a more formal way, which is the Brooklyn Game Lab, which is a, an after-school program in Brooklyn that teaches game design. It mostly is board games that very light on role-playing games, but they had think about like Harry Potter houses that types of kids would be put into. Gotcha. And there were there was a house basically for those, you know, chaotic evil kids. <laughs> um, it was called Red Moon. They were barbarian themed and all that. But yeah, there are absolutely some kids out there who are who are Red Moons, right? Mm-hmm. Who that is the way they have fun. You introduce them to a villager, and nine times out of ten, they're going to kill them and loot the body. <laughs> um, but at the same time there are the kids who play the lawful good paladin Mm -hmm. and that's it's not a stretch for them that's who they want to be there are the kids who play the hyper academic wizard the kids who play the druid um these are all personality traits that i see represented in kids as young as like six or seven um it certainly shifts the older they get I'd say, you know, six, seven, you're going to have a lot more of those Red Moon kids, a lot more of those, like, chaotic evil. By the time it's 11, 12, 13, I don't know, they kind of fade away. Um, some of them are still out there. I've dealt with 16-year-olds who are still that person. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, as they get older, I see it less and less. Gotcha. Now, just kind of one one last question about group psychology before uh, we, we get into some other stuff here. Um, wh- when you run for kids, you know, how, how do you divide them up age-wise? Do you have a whole bunch of different kids of different ages together, or do you try to, like, split them into age groups to, I don't know, contain some of that? Uh, it, what's kind of the, the philosophy that you guys use for that? Uh, it really depends. Um, if... If this is the raw after-school program where we're placing kids in pods, uh, yeah, we we try to keep it plus or minus a year and a half um, from a central point. So rarely are you going to have somebody more than two years younger or two years older than you, Um, and that's if you're in the middle. So you know, a pod might be eight to eleven, and if we can keep it tighter than that, we do. But there's also an individual accounting of like emotional maturity. Mm-hmm. We deal with 13-year-olds who have the emotional maturity of seven and vice versa. Um, and we'll account for that in in the group dynamic that's sought out. Mm-hmm. It also depends on the type of game, right? Like a, a heavy strategic game, I need to make sure that the player skill level is on par more than the emotional maturity of gotcha. the kids. Whereas like a more storytelling-focused game... I don't need you to understand your sheet. I just need to make sure that you're on the same wavelength when it comes to making, like, believe. Mm-hmm. So, but yeah, I'd say, uh, broadly speaking, it's three years is the, the range I try to keep a, a pod to. Gotcha. Gotcha. Awesome. That Yeah, that... That definitely makes sense. As someone who's also, you know, worked with kids in the past, you know, I, th- there's definitely, uh, you know, it... it it's cool on one hand to see older kids working with younger kids and, you know, what can come out of stuff like that. But then there's also the sense of, you know, do the 13-year-olds want to have fun at the same table as the 8-year-olds? And in most cases, that's probably a no. So it's it's 
definitely an interesting thing that that kind of dynamic that can develop there so we've talked a lot about playing games but you guys of course teach game design as well so when it comes to teaching kids game design what's kind of the the goal there or what do you think uh can can come from a kid learning not just how to play a game but how to make a game of their own sure um okay so so first and foremost i'd say anyone who plays enough games knows how to make games um you might not know the technical skill right you might not know photoshop or indesign you might not know how to deal with printers or manufacturers in china or whatever but on like a very basic level, anyone who's played two or three role-playing games for a few years, given enough time, a piece of paper and a pen can make their own game. Like the barrier to entry from a technical standpoint is unbelievably low in analog games, which is one of the great things about them. That's why things like paper prototyping exist in the video game world. It's always going to be easier to just draft out a game on paper. That said, as with so much learning, you make a lot of the same pitfalls if nobody's there to point them out, right? Sometimes that's good, right? Mm -hmm. Learning how to fail is a really important skill in life. Um, but learning how to fail and then having somebody help you see exactly where you failed, I think, is like the most productive medium. Um, I think that's what the best teachers, period, whatever the topic, end up doing. So from a kind of baseline philosophical state, that's where I I come from before you get to the what, what good does it do, right? Mm -hmm. Anyone who's sufficiently interested in playing games has an eye toward design whether or not they know it. Yeah. We all hack our games. We all... Every person who's ever played Monopoly understands how house rules work. Um doing that better with like a more focused eye on how to make this thing fun for me and my friends and my family. That's where it started. Um, where does it come out in terms of like, what, what's the driving philosophical motivation behind this? Why not teach literally anything else? Um, I don't know. On some level, I think understanding how games function teaches us a lot about how systems in the world function. Um, once you can take apart an engine, you start seeing how other machines work. Um, the thing is, most people don't want to take apart an engine because you just want the car to work. Yeah. Games are a little different because, and I think this is why I, I, I hit on utilizing them. Um, it's very rare that the process of deconstructing something is is inherently fun. We normally do it just because the thing's broken, mm -hmm. and we need to figure out how to fix it. But with games, deconstruction is part of the fun, and it gives us a really clean and really engaging entry point to that type of systems thinking that I see 
becoming more and more important, both for adults in the working world, but also just for kids navigating what it means to be a kid today. Mm-hmm. Um, and frankly, what it means to be a kid, period, right? Like, I learned how to navigate the social dynamics of my school as an unpopular nerdy kid through the lens of group dynamics and role-playing games. Um, I would not have been able to figure out, like, what a bully wants from me if I didn't have a decent handle on the concept of, like, alignment systems, Um, which seems preposterous, and, and maybe that's just how I learned to engage with social structures, but it gave me a lens to understand the world at a very young age. Mm -hmm. Um, When I look at game design now for anyone, period, that's what I see. I see an entry point to systems thinking in a world that still hasn't quite wrapped its head around how important systems are. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, and for for certain types of people, um, and... It sounds like this was your experience. Uh, you know, certain types of people pick up on that uh, very easily and, and, you know, can get a lot of value out of that. Uh, there are some people I've noticed who just, you know, no matter how hard you, you explain the system to them, they're, they're not going to see it. They're not going to get it. Um, and that's that's not even, like, referring to... Obviously, that's a thing with gaming, but, you know, in real it's life. It's just the world. Yeah. 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 Some people just don't know the game that's being played. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but for the people who can think about things that way and do often find themselves thinking in a system based way, uh, that seems like an invaluable skill to have and, and definitely something that, uh, you know, w- when you learn it young can certainly lead to, you know, further success as you get older. And I would I- even go one step further, which is and, and this is just to speak to my experience with, with some of those people that you just described who, who don't have a natural inclination to it and who struggle with it even when it's pointed out, mm-hmm. that even with those people, given, given enough time and patience and perseverance, you can basically acclimate them to thinking in that way without them ever realizing that they've begun thinking in that way. Um, and it's, it's a matter of taking it from the like structured theoretical level um, to almost a level of like uh, rote learning. Mm-hmm. If you see this, then do this. Um, I see this a lot in, I mean, yeah, training people with like low social intelligence, right? Um, it's just a big thing in workplaces. It's a big thing in uh, schooling for the neurodivergent. Um, there are certain people who really by no fault of their own just lack the aptitude for processing information in that way. Um, they're not lost causes. You just need to find a, a lever for educating them in a different way. And I find even for those individuals, games are, are a really good tool for instilling that information whether or not they realize that's what's happening gotcha gotcha so when it comes to uh you know teaching design uh what are what are kind of the steps that you take in uh you know taking a kid who maybe they've played a couple board games you know they they've played i don't know the the worst board game in the universe Candyland, and that's about it um how do you take someone like that 
and then uh, you know, kind of get them to pick up on elements of game design and, and learn and make their own sure. game? How, how does that process go for you guys? So the phrase I tend to use is insidious learning, um, which is to say the moment you start explicitly instructing them in game design is the moment they tune out. Mm -hmm. um, so from a kid's perspective, all we're really doing is playing. Um, but we we work in cycles of a month, by and large. Uh, Four-week cycles following a similar schema week over, or month over month, which is week one, introduce a new game. And these are, you know, not heavy euros by and large these are usually pretty light games run in somewhere between 60 and 90 minutes um and that first week we either play the base game or if it's a more complicated game a stripped down version of the base game intro to the game we do short seminars what did they learn what did they like what didn't they like what were some strategies that the successful kids did or what could you have done better if you had a really low score week two uh, and, you, and you attend one day a week, um, mm. so you're not overloaded with it. Week two, we either play uh, the full game if it was simplified, or uh, if we played the full game the first week, uh, add in optional rules, because a lot of modern board games include those. Mm -hmm. And then we go, okay, so how did how did this change the game? Right, like now Now that you're playing with the full deck of cards, did those strategies you came up with in week one, did they work the same? Why not? Um, kind of teasing out, okay, start thinking critically about not game design, but just how to be better at this game. Mm -hmm. um, week three, we solicit suggestions. Basically, if we were going to make our own version of this game, what would we do? What would we change? Do you not like the theme? Does it seem like the theming of this game is messing with your understanding of the mechanics of the game? Um, should this be a pirate game instead of a fantasy game? Would that make you feel more in alignment with what the game is asking you to do to win? Or is it that actually 2d6 doesn't work for this and it should be 3d6 or 1d6 or 1d10? Um, and we take basically the, the highest voted options um, after some discussion and usually a little bit of debate uh, between the kids and we then collectively produce a copy of that game and that's week four we play the version of the game the kids have produced um, and we compare and contrast with the version that we played in week one and two and basically go okay now that you had your stab at making this game different making it more what you think you would have liked how did that turn out um, and then we do you know a debrief and then we put it away and we start the next week on another game and kind of naturally just through the iterative cycle of play, consider, modify, reconsider, kids pick up an understanding of how do mechanics function, right? Mm -hmm. You might not know the term roll and write or heavy Euro or any of that, but you'll start understanding how worker placement functions in a game and like what intuitively feels like good balance or bad balance um you do that for a semester or two kids will come out at a point that i have seen designers work at for five years 
and not hit. Um, and they'll never even realize that they were being taught game design. Gotcha. So it, it really is just as simple as... Uh, you know, we, we play this board game and, and to the kid's mind, you're just, you're playing a board game or you're playing a, you're playing an RPG and then a little bit of discussion about the rules. What would you change? And just as you guys do that, they, they pick up all the skills that that's, that's very interesting. Yeah. That's, I mean, that is the lion's share of it for any kid who is sufficiently interested there, you know, there, there's advanced stuff to do. I'm not going to say that this is a substitute for the kind of design education a kid might get in the NYU game design MFA program, mm -hmm. right? Like there, there are levels to this thing, but I have, I've seen kids go through three, four years of this and the type of games they intuitively produce are better than things friends of mine who have gone through those MFA programs come up with. Gotcha. Gotcha. Cool. So essentially, um, you know, the, the, the ones who are very successful in this program, you're, you're basically revealing a, a somewhat unrefined skill within them and, and, and gradually just kind of refining that until it gets to a point where they can, uh, you know, produce something on par with, uh, you know, a lower level professional. That's that's really cool. Yeah. That I mean, I I would even argue that it's it's not even a skill that they necessarily have that's unrefined. Mm -hmm. It's I have yet to meet a child who couldn't pick it up with time. Gotcha. I think when I started, I assumed there was an innate skill, and some kids just would stop at having fun with games. And I have yet to meet the child who doesn't have it in them to be a game designer if they want to. Gotcha. Now, do you think that's got something to do, and this might be like a whole psychology, neurology rabbit hole that I definitely don't have the credentials to go down, but do you think that has to do with kind of the elasticity of, of a child's mind that, you know, they're... they're thoughts about things are not as rigid not as structured as they become as they age so at that point you know they're they're more able to pick up on things like that uh, or am i completely off target? no i mean it's an interesting thought um yeah it sounds like there's a kernel of truth to it but i've likewise if you were to test it right what you'd mm. need is a group of adults who you could put through the same cycle. Yeah. And the problem there is they'd be fundamentally self-selecting. Um, any adult who chose to go through four years of this would be an adult who had a fundamental interest in it. Mm -hmm. um, which is different from kids because I've seen kids who their older sibling is into it and their parents just make them go together. Um, because they don't want to deal with two after-school programs. And both of them become good at game design. And I, I don't think there's an analog 
with adults that's really testable. Yeah, you'd almost have to like trick the adults into into doing it, which might not work as as well or as consistently as Yeah, I think it would I don't even know that I could say it might not work as well. I think it would just take substantially longer. Yeah. Um but to that point, yeah, I mean my my gut instinct is given time and some some way to keep them from quitting hmm. either either from a program or or on the possibility of them designing games um i don't know that i can picture a type of person who couldn't become a game designer like do i think every type of person can design every type of game no but i also don't think that about professional game designers yeah um I wouldn't trust Mike Merles to write a CCG. I just wouldn't. I don't think that's a thing Merles could do. Mm-hmm. Um, I wouldn't trust Sid Saxon to make a role-playing game. And Sid Saxon is one of the most prolific board game designers of all time. Or like Rainer Knizia. Um, I don't think I, I don't think Rainer Knizia would add anything valuable to Wizards of the Coast on the D and D team, um, despite the fact that he has you know over a hundred published titles and is probably the most lauded board game designer of the past five decades. Um, yeah, I, I, every every type of person has a type of game that I think they could produce. Hmm. Gotcha. That. That that is very interesting to think about because, I mean, the the idea that every every single person could potentially have you know a game that they could create is something that y- even among people who love games, I I mean I play games with there's seven of us that, that get together every week and we play games and I don't think that's even occurred to every single person at the table even though. I think three of them have made games, um, you know. So, so even amongst people who who love this hobby, I don't think the the idea has occurred to them that you know maybe you know I I do this uh, when I GM. Well, I guess if you GM, then you're already into design at that point. But you know, just as a casual player who just kind of shows up to the same game every week thinking you know maybe i might have the potential to do this or i have the potential to do this that is that is a very interesting and 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 very exciting thought honestly that i I I love that it's it's a deeply human block to me right because Mm -hmm. I, i think it's not just limited to games every person who watches a movie could go to their local library and take out a video camera. And maybe they don't become the next Spielberg or the next Scorsese or the next whoever, but they can quite literally make a movie. And if they keep doing it, they'll probably produce at least one decent piece of visual media. Maybe it doesn't play by all the normal genre rules, right? But that's what outsider art is. We have an entire term for it. Art created by people who don't have a formal art education. Um, And Outsider art has created some of the most stunning and well-loved examples of art in basically every media. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet people still think, oh, I can't do that. I don't have it in me. I'm not a creative person. Yet yeah, maybe you can't do it as a career. 
maybe you're never going to be in the MoMA or like you're never going to be shown at like the Chinese theater in LA for your premiere. But uh, that doesn't mean you can't make art. That doesn't mean you can't hmm. like create. Um, and, and in fact, our generation and I'd say the generation directly above us, um, the media exposure that we have just by being alive is what I would assume throughout human history is like substantially greater than even the practicing artists encountered. Mm -hmm. We just don't think about it, right? I, I have consumed more media in my life, not being a practice, like a practicing professional artist, not having a patron, not having a mentor. Like I didn't go to a conservatory. I have just by dint of being alive consumed more media than almost anyone in human history. Yeah. Comparatively speaking, there is no good reason for me to believe I can't draw on that deep well and produce something. Um, yeah, it just, it, it stuns me that people don't think about it because to me, it's the most natural thing in the world. If you want to create, just go out and do it. You have a life full of experience to draw on whether or not you think of it that way mm -hmm. yeah yeah absolutely and it's i mean it's thoughts like that that drive me to create you know thinking if everyone if everyone has a story to tell or a game that they could create or the the potential in them to you know create something that other people can enjoy uh, then I have it in me, and I can definitely do something, uh, even even if it's not, you know, the masterpiece of all masterpieces. It is something that will bring joy to some people, and that's definitely, hell, that's a thought that every, every artist, every, even people who don't consider themselves artists, that's, that's something that every, everyone should have, in, in my opinion. You have it in you to make somebody else happy with a thing that you create. Yeah. that's And that's it. It doesn't have to be any more than that. That's yeah. the only impetus any of us really needs. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Gotcha. Now, moving on into a, a very different world, but still one that, that you guys offer at, uh, you know, the Academy of Games. Uh, and this is one that interests me and intrigues me as someone who works in corporate America, uh, the professional programs that you guys mm -hmm. offer. Um, what all do you offer in that space? We'll start there. And then sure. from, from there we can, we can get into specifics. That's fair. So I, I'd say broadly speaking, we really have two verticals, right? We have fun and organizational design. Um, by and large, when it comes to professional programs, we're doing much the same thing as we're doing with kids. Mm -hmm. um, taking interested parties, taking the, you know, 5, 10, 15, 20, however many employees there are at a company who like games and usually don't have a person in their group who wants to consistently GM or consistently buy the new thing and figure it out. They might hear about it and they might want to test it out, but they don't have anyone in their office or in their personal life, if we're not dealing with a corporation, who will play it with them. Um, that's a lot of it, right? It's just someone who's played 
you know, 5e and they've heard about Pendragon and nobody they know wants to learn the rules to Pendragon, okay, well, we'll run Pendragon for you. You want to run through the entirety of the great Pendragon campaign? Awesome. That's great. I haven't done that since I was a kid. Please hire me to do that. Um, basically, it's just taking the burden off of the group um, to to reduce the barrier to them playing games. So that's usually what we're dealing with when it comes to adults. That said, I got into this through basically corporate gamification. Um, that's what brought me back to analog games in a real way. And frankly, a lot of it's garbage, just straight up. I have no issue saying that. Um, I have seen a lot of gamification attempts that have substantially worsened the organizational processes they were meant to fix. Yeah. Um, I think most people in the corporate world have. A lot of that comes down to, well, so at a top level, before you even get into games, a lot of it comes down to consultants who just don't take the time to learn the organization. Um, and so you get a lot of, uh, cookie cutter solutions that have a statistically high chance of working that tank given the group dynamics of your org. Um, mm -hmm. That's, I would say, problem number one, and that has nothing to do with games. That's before gamification even steps in. Mm -hmm. But the next step is, well, that can often be exacerbated when you try to make it fun. Um, when it comes to that portion of our work i don't know i think of it like um <laughs> play therapy for a business um i look at what's dysfunctional and I'm, I'm usually presented with a a specific issue or a specific learning outcome that they want to instill and a specific population within the organization that they want to do it for so it might be our HR team is really struggling with uh, retention on sexual harassment seminars. We know how to deliver them. People seem in exits to take the right message. But then when we do a follow-up six to nine months later, they've lost all the information. Hmm. How do we address this? Right. So now I have a very specific aim. And so I, I have to honestly assess, okay, is that something that I think I can help alleviate? And if I can help alleviate it, what levers do I have at my disposal? Um, and a lot of times, the way to fix these things are through things that look a heck of a lot like game mechanics. Mm -hmm. um, and there's a very good reason and a very simple reason for that, which is Game mechanics, first and foremost, are tools for leveraging specific human behaviors. Um, whether or not they're fun is completely incidental to how they function. Mm -hmm. um, I hope they're fun when I'm playing a game for fun, right? I don't want to just have levers that are just absolutely miserable um, and instill in me, uh, I don't want a game that instills mortality salience, right? I don't want to be mm -hmm. sitting there thinking about my own mortality at the table and not having a good time. Mm -hmm. um, but there are mechanics that can do that, right? Like mm -hmm. instilling mortality salience is fundamentally a mechanic. Um, I just tend to approach it from a pretty 
unique standpoint. And what I learned is that explaining that as advanced gamification or game-based learning, um, and then walking people through the steps through the lens of game mechanics, although it seems counterintuitive at first, it lets people have a really firm grasp on the type of changes that you're trying to implement, right? If I can say, well, here's a mechanic that does X, Y, and Z, I don't have to leave it at the abstract. I can literally present you with a game that does what I'm talking about, and we can go through it, and then we can do a post hoc, like, hey, what what was your experience? Do you understand why this is a thing that I think in this framework gets to the heart of what you're trying to do? Um, yeah, I, it's it's hard to explain. Honestly, I end up dealing with a lot of L and D professionals, and they are usually the ones who who I sell on it. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, that's basically it. I I am a I am a, a therapist for organizations, and I just use games. I just I do play therapy. Gotcha. Yeah, I mean. I've experienced what's a, a lot of kind of, you know, trying to make not fun things fun just by saying it's a game now. That seems to be the extent of a lot of kind of the yeah. worst aspects of gamification. Yeah. You just, you say the word game and suddenly it's supposed to be enjoyable and not a slog now. When you, when you just throw in leaderboards and badges, the thing still sucks. Yep. Um, <laughs> it's funny. Um, and I mean, I think this is as true with designing games for fun as anything else, but it it always seems to strike people. Mm. I don't think you can design for fun. Right. Um, in any context. Mm -hmm. I think fun is incidental to functional design. Um, I don't think D&D &D as written is a fun game. I think it's a set of rules. Yeah. You can have fun with those rules, or you cannot. Um, the only thing that matters is, are the rules coherent and do they encourage certain behaviors? If you're the type of person who enjoys those behaviors, you're going to have fun. Mm -hmm. If you're not that type of person, you're not going to have fun. And that's, that's all you can do. When I say design for fun, that's to me a basically incoherent statement. Um, who's fun? At what time are they having fun? In what group? In what setting? I don't have control over those. All I can do is create design that consistently elicits specific behaviors. Mm -hmm. um, at heart, that's all good organizational design is either, or two, right? Um, if I can design workplace processes, if I can design you know, hierarchies and reporting structures that consistently create the behaviors that either the management wants or that are frankly beneficial for the employees or the functioning of the organization i've designed a game and the if that game is good or not is firmly on how well it does the thing it sets out to do i hope it's fun and certainly there are good as in functional games that produce nothing but misery and i hope never to produce those <laughs> um but to me, they're they're almost functionally identical, right? Mm -hmm. It's just you you have an eye on. Well, I try not to hurt anybody while I'm doing it, um, but the task is the same. I'm creating a functional system in in a closed environment. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I just 
I, I, I have to get this out of the way because this is, um, I'm still on bad gamification here in my mind because saying nope. it brought it up in my head. One of my managers at the place I work decided that, you know, when we had a successful, uh, you know, like when, when we had a sale, uh, they were going to hit this gong. You'd go up and you hit the gong. Uh, two problems with that. One, we work at a call center. Oh. And two, they put the gong right in front of my desk. See, like, and this and this isn't a hard thing to see, right? Yeah, exactly. It's, it's it's designing a supposedly fun idea into something without considering in any way how it actually affects the structure of the thing, mm-hmm. um, right? And I'll take a, I'll take literally the example of a gong in a different context, right? If I am at a convention and Goodman Games is there, good odds are they are running DCC funnels. It's their Mm -hmm. bread and butter. When they run funnels in an open room, they have a gong. When a character dies or a team is eliminated, the gong gets rung. They keep the gong far away from the tables, and it's a fun thing to recognize for the group that doesn't really interrupt play because it only takes a second and there's like you can ignore it if you need to yeah right if you put it close to a person it's gonna suck for them and if you do it in a way or in a setting where it's inherently disruptful to Mm. what they're actually trying to attain versus just heightening the experience that you've already created that's bad game design right it's putting a mechanic in that's actively detrimental to what the function of the game is supposed to be um it's not that a gong's a bad idea it's just it wasn't considered in the gestalt of the thing yeah um and 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 that's that's i think the difference and i would argue that's not even bad gamification that's just bad systems thinking Mm -hmm. um right gamification is just a very specific type of systems thinking and this gets back to why games because ultimately everything is systems. Mm-hmm. And the more you can see that in the world, the more you can deconstruct how well or poorly the systems that we have to engage with function. Um, mm-hmm. And that, that has everything to do with like, how does my workplace function? How's my home life? How are the social dynamics with my friends? Um, am I a good parent? Uh, all these things are understanding the systems in our lives and then adjusting accordingly for the outcomes we want Mm -hmm. people just aren't trained to think in those ways but there's no reason they can't be Mm -hmm. absolutely and and i mean what one this this is actually the second time i've been exposed to uh this idea of uh systems thinking um and and he's a bit of a controversial figure now uh i'm not gonna say anything one way or the other about uh other things that this guy has talked about, but if you read the book, how to, uh, I, I believe the title is how to fail at almost everything and still somehow succeed by Scott Adams. He talks a lot about systems thinking in that, uh, particular book as well and how he's developed systems for a lot of things he's done in, in his work in his life. They, I'm not a fan of Scott Adams, but I also was never a fan of Scott Adams cause I, I didn't think Dilbert was very funny. Mm-hmm. Um, that said, it makes perfect sense that that would be an early point of exposure for you to the idea of systems thinking because more exposure 
through like the tech world mm-hmm. which is you know adam's background yeah. um than pretty much anywhere else um has it has it filtered down to be more widespread absolutely yeah. you can see it in modern education theory in like education or, or like psychological development all sorts of places have adopted the the rough framework but definitely i mean my early exposure to the idea of system thinking was tech as well so yeah adams makes perfect sense of a place to uh to find it yeah yeah and that i i'm also in tech myself so that's well there you go yeah and and i think a lot of the kind of perf or proliferation of this kind of thinking is the fact that a lot of industries are now just by nature of everything uh taking on more of a technolo- technology focus there's a little bit of tech in almost everything now so yeah, pretty much so that that thinking coming along with it makes makes a good amount of sense yeah I don't know if I want to comment on if that's a necessarily good or bad thing. I think if we could if we could develop a system that maybe if we get some more like sociology and and clinical psychology into organizations too, that would be great. Um, yeah. But uh, but we have what we have, so we might as well take the better parts of it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Now, uh, one last thing I want to discuss, uh, specifically uh, related to to you. Uh, you mentioned before we went on the air, you have your own show. Uh, so, so tell us a little bit about uh, your show. You know, what, sure. where where it can be found, where people can hear it, all that kind of uh, stuff. Yeah, um, where it can be found. <laughs> it's I don't even know. I have a YouTube link that I put up on Twitter every now and then. Um, I should probably fix that, but I. Do you know what Zine Quest is? Yep, absolutely. Okay, so for last year's Zine Quest, um, I have a long-standing promise to myself, bet with myself, going back years. Um, no matter how ridiculous something seems to me, if it gets a positive enough response from the people in my life, I'm going to give it a shot. Um, this has led me some, down some very bad paths. This is let me down some very good paths. Um, for Zine Quest 2, which was last year, I put out a shit post on Twitter, which was basically, hey, would people just listen to me, like, get game designers hammered and uh, just talk to them while they're, like, shit-faced for, like, an hour? Um, is that, like, a, a project people would want? And I thought like nobody would want it or like two or three people would find it was funny. And I got like hundreds and hundreds of likes. Um, and I was like, well, shit, I guess I have to make this real. So I did a zine quest uh, for a book originally called Not Pretty But Wonderful Designers in Conversation, um, where that was the basic conceit. If someone was going to drink, they could drink. If they wanted to get high, they could get high. If they were sober, I've been sober for like eight years. Um, well, we'll eat a lot of food or we'll drink a bunch of coffee. Um, nobody has to become inebriated. It was just you have to get to a point of uncomfortable excess to break your filters, to like get to the core of what you actually want to say. Um, hmm. Because so often when people in our hobby are interviewed 
or are featured in a panel, we're, we're very self-censoring. Um, we, I mean, for, for good reasons and bad, right? If you have a bunch of money riding on this, you probably don't want to shit the bed with something you say and tank your career. Um, especially if you're like higher up in an organization or something versus just an individual designer. Hmm. But I got a bunch of people signed on um, at lots of levels of the hierarchy. Um, the the head of production for Modiphius came on and we he got tanked on gin and tonics and we talked for two and a half hours about like production. Um, and yeah, originally the plan was to to have these be in persons. Uh, in person at conventions mm -hmm. and the plan was to go to breakout con in toronto um oh the big one in london that's um, escaping me right now dragon meat uh -uh. no not dragon meat the other one gotcha. um that's gonna kill me they did an online version this year uh wow i I'm sorry, UK friends or anybody listening to this who knows it begins with a G. It's four letters. You'll get there faster than me. Um, Essen in Germany, uh, Gen Con, and then PAX Unplugged was the schedule for the year. And I had, you know, lined up interviews with people in different places. You know, there are teams that are going to go to Essen because they're located in Eastern Europe, but they're not going to fly to Gen Con. Um, and there are likewise, you know, individuals who are in America who aren't going to fly to Essen. Um, and then coronavirus hit. And I pivoted to doing them all online. Uh, so what had originally been planned as voice recordings transcribed into a book has instead become video recordings of of me and the guest talking usually for, you know, an hour and a half or two hours. Uh, I'm going to check something. I'm going to see if I can Google it right now mm -hmm. to see if that works. Um, see if that's a way people can find it. Not pretty, but wonderful YouTube. Ha ha. It did. All right. Well, my SEO is good. That's nice. Um, if you type in not pretty but wonderful YouTube into Google, you can find it. Um, and I believe we're up to like 22 episodes now. Um, and they're all fun conversations. Uh, I try to cover the spread of people in different aspects of the hobby. Um, indie designers, OSR designers, trad designers, people who work in non-design functions. As I was saying off cam uh, before the show, you know, I have uh, my first cosplayer and streamer interview will be coming up. Um, you can also see like the full list of people who I'm supposed to interview if you want to see who's coming up next. Uh, if you just do not pretty but wonderful Kickstarter, that'll pull up the Kickstarter page. Um, yeah, that's that's it. It is a fun project that I use to help keep myself sane through lockdown and that I'm now beholden to see through to completion. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. 
And uh, for anyone who listens to this show and has not checked out Not Pretty But Wonderful, uh, a couple entry points for you here just uh, from people who've been on uh, my show before. Uh, Joe has done interviews with both Banana Chan and, of course, Hambone. Banana was my very first interview. Gotcha. Um, Banana is a very good friend. She actually helped me... uh, create some resumes back in the day like before i ever got started doing the academy of games we both lived in new york and i am not a good graphic designer it's not a skill i have really uh she is a very good graphic designer and so we met up at her apartment in new york and uh and she just like helped me design a resume that was great and like that was i knew her before i really knew that we were both in the games world that much gotcha yeah, it's it's interesting how uh, you know stuff like that comes together, and and uh, Banana's definitely a, a great designer, and and you know she's a great interview. Uh, her and Sen came on the show to talk about mm-hmm. Junction, and I ended up backing it, and uh, now we're just waiting on it. I mean, same. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, if you were into. Uh, board games banana worked on the uh scooby-doo betrayal at house on the hill mm-hmm. um which is excellent i am not normally into licensed ip games and especially not like hacks like uh, uh the betrayal at boulder's gate i want to say is mm-hmm. the D version yep not a big fan um but i the scooby-doo one is excellent mm-hmm. um she did a really good job adapting that 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 became kind of a thing in uh, my old D&D group. I still keep up with them. The The group that I originally played with, uh, they were, someone brought up the uh, the Betrayal at Mystery Mansion, I think is what it's called, the Scooby-Doo yes. version. Yeah. And people were like, that's not a real game. That doesn't exist. And someone was like, no, no, it exists. And I was like, yeah, it exists. And I know someone who worked on it. And that comment just went completely ignored. And then someone was like, hey, I found out that Scooby-Doo game is actually real. And I said, yeah, and I know someone who's worked on it. <laughs> Doesn't it? Just, that's what I've learned is nobody actually cares name dropping in games. Yeah. Uh, it's always like, yeah, cool. You know that person. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. Let's just take your fucking turn. <laughs> like, come on. Let's let's get the shit rolling. Good for you. I need to know what happens. Do you do you crit fail? Come on. Um. Yeah, yeah, it's one of those things. Especially if you're the only person at the table who like is kind of in that world. Like playing. If if I shanghaied a whole bunch of my friends into playing Deadlands with me, and was like, hey, and I've interviewed Shane Hensley twice, they'd be like, who? Who? And you just point to the name, and they'd be like, tight, awesome. Yeah. I, don't, I don't give a shit. Cool. Um, I draw my sex gun. Yeah, this isn't this isn't like me going, yeah, I met Vigo Mortensen. Yeah. I don't know Vigo Mortensen, but I technically met Vigo Mortensen. People are like, oh my god, I'm so starstruck. Mm-hmm. But if I'm like, I know all of these, I walk into a hobby store, and I know half of the names I see. Nobody cares. Yeah. Yeah. Gotcha. Well, Joe, we are uh, running short on time here. Um, 
besides your show uh, and obviously uh, the Academy of Games, uh, anything else you want to promote, go ahead. Uh, you know, I like to give this time over to the guests to promote what they've got coming up. So uh, the floor is yours and uh, go for it. Absolutely nothing. Like, I, I'll take the moment to to reiterate, you know, just make whatever you want to make. Um, there's, yeah, there's good taste and there's bad taste, but I'm not the arbiter of it. I, don't, I believe it exists, but I have absolutely no idea where that line is. Just go out and make your art. Go out and make your game. Go out and make your own fun. Um, that's that's why we like analog games often more than video games because they're our fun. Um, just take the next step. Like if if you need somebody to hold your hand doing it, there's no shame in that. That's why my business exists, and people seem to have a pretty good time with it. I do too. But at the end of the day, like, if nobody gave me any money, but everybody out there started making their own games, whatever they looked like, I'd be happier. I'd be happier with a collapsed, utterly failed business and more game designers in the world. Absolutely. All right, guys. Well, that is going to do it for today's episode. Thank you, Joe, for coming on and, uh, you know, talking about all of this kind of philosophy stuff. This is really what I like to do with, with Rolling Bones now, now that we've you know, done this and, and the Chaosium episode and my episode with, uh, with Hanker and Fernell. Theory's great. It's fun. Yeah, absolutely. I, I love to think about why we love what we love, why we do what we do and what we can learn from it. That's, I mean, I'll, I'll point it off screen again. <laughs> at the philosophy degree that's hanging on the wall there. That's what I'm into. That kind of stuff fascinates me. And I'm glad that we could have another conversation like this. Always. Gotcha. Well, guys, uh, to this, uh, Saturday on Danishes and dragons, uh, I've got at least two, probably a third, uh, sleuth build for 5e. These are all going to be different kinds of, uh, investigators, gumshoes, Seamuses, whatever your preferred word for a private investigator is. We're looking at different ways that you can play a, uh, hard-boiled detective in 5th edition, whether you want to take that in a magical direction or be a bounty hunter or, you know, whatever your poison may be, we'll be taking a look at that uh, this Saturday morning for Danishes and Dragons. And this time next week, uh, we are doing an episode all about maps. We are bringing on Alyssa Fadden. I am super excited to talk about maps. I am a recent convert to the world of RPG maps. And they're important, so we're going to have a great session talking about that. But until then, guys, whether you rolled a 1 or a 20, I am so glad that you rolled your bones with me, Ryan Howard, and I'll see you next time.